Hello, and welcome to Clearer Thinking with Spencer Greenberg, the podcast about ideas that matter. I'm Josh Castle. I'm the producer of the podcast, and I'm so glad you joined us today. In this episode, Spencer speaks with Sam Rosen about the importance of aesthetics, the strengths and weaknesses of the way philosophy is currently practiced, important social skills and how to learn them, Sam's experiences with and views on polyamory, and reasons why societies decay over time. Sam, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Hey, man. It's good to see you. Yeah. So the first topic I want to discuss with you is the topic of the art world and what you think about it. And one of the ways that I think about you is as a person who just cares incredibly about art and beauty and aesthetics, and I, that, which is, I think, quite different than myself, whereas I think I'm not so much living in the aesthetic realm as, as you are. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. So I care a lot about aesthetics. I've been having an art blog that I've been like every day putting more art on it for years now. But I also have sort of like philosophical thoughts about like the art world. And I'm kind of unhappy with how it's going. Tell me first about the protest you did at the MoMA. (laughs) Yeah, so I went to the MoMA with a sign that said, this museum could be better with like, uh, on the back of the sign was like a really gorgeous work of art. And then when people asked me, me why me and my friends were protesting, I had like a, some essays to hand them about why a lot of conceptual analysis in art is like kind of stale and like not good philosophy. So my understanding of your position is that basically there are things that exist that people would enjoy more, that people would find more beautiful. And for some reason, they're not always or maybe not often the things that actually end up on the museum walls. Is that right? Yeah. So like human preferences correlate. They don't perfectly correlate, but they correlate enough that we can talk about like, oh, that's a good water park. That's a good Dunkin' Donuts. We can talk about what we want out of our experiences. And people want a lot of similar things out of art museums. So even if they don't all want the same things, there's still a sense in which people can talk about a good art museum like they can talk about a, a good water park. And they don't seem to be optimizing for human enjoyment very much. And that seems like, like it seems surprising that whenever I walk into a contemporary gallery, it's boring. Like that seems like a surprising thing. And you think that most people would probably agree. Like if you took a random person on the street and brought them through it, they'd be like, oh, that's not that interesting. Yeah, I I definitely think that. And it's not like there isn't great contemporary art being made because like I've just, I know a lot of it. And also if you go to Burning Man, it's filled with awe-inspiring art that I can tell people love and react to differently. I've gone to like a lot of art galleries in New York and I see people's reaction is like, huh, hmm. Their reaction is like a sort of like a raise an eyebrow or go, huh. Whereas at Burning Man, I've seen people cry in front of works of art. And I think it's obvious that people would prefer the latter experience. That's really interesting. So tell me about what do you think is wrong with the art being shown? And how would you make a better art gallery that really touches people? So like for the art galleries, it seems like part of the problem is just cultural, that the like idea of like creating spaces for things that people really want is missing. And I don't know how to fix the culture other than to point out that, hey, like, we could be creating galleries that are making people cry and are incredibly awe-inspiring, and we're not doing that. But also there's probably things, I thought about the idea of having people vote online on what kinds of art they wanna see in galleries, and then the art galleries maybe have like some mixed option where the curators decide half the art, and then the online voting determines the other half of the art. So there's a mixture of like elite curation and popular demand. That's so funny. That's so similar to my ideal art gallery, which I I once wrote up in a blog post, that my ideal art gallery 
would be one that mainly contains replicas so that they could get just the coolest art in the world rather than being so constrained by, oh, this art costs a million dollars. And that you would have different rooms curated based on different tastes. Like, this is the most popular art from the random person on the street. This is the art from the art collectors that they think is best. This is the art that the artists think is best and so on. You could compare how these different perspectives on what makes art good operate. Yeah, I, I actually, that's one of my biggest critiques of the art world is they don't seem to be very hard trying to optimize anything. So like when you say like, oh, here's what the person on the street most likes, here's what the elite opinion likes. Like you could have different wings of museums that are, one is dedicated completely to making you feel sad. One is completely dedicated to extreme beauty. One is extremely dedicated to the skill and difficulty of producing it. You know what I mean? You could optimize very hard for specific things. And when I go to art museums of any sort, they don't seem very hard trying to optimize for anything. Like what I would love is an archipelago of different museums and galleries that are very hard optimizing along different axes so that different people can get what they want very intensely rather than sort of a mild averaging of all of our tastes. I love that. It seems like you can really please people a lot more if you just go all in for that type of viewer. You mean for like a specific dimension of like one along one axis? Exactly. Like for some people, for example, they might love the idea of like the history of that object, right? And they want, might want to see, you know, oh, this was the painting that Leonardo da Vinci actually made, or this is the, this actually was made by ancient Egyptians. And for other people, that's totally irrelevant. And they just want, what's the most beautiful thing I can see? I don't, you know, I don't care about the historicity of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I want them all to get what they want. I feel there's like a, a surprising uniformity of contemporary art museums, like what they're like, what the kinds of art I see in them. And I would love to see just much more optimization along different axes, just to see what kind of experiences you can give people. Like imagine there was an art gallery just dedicated to making you feel afraid. That would be really awesome. Just a fear-based art gallery. That would be an intense experience, but it would definitely be better than the sort of boring, bland experience that I usually get when I go into a lot of galleries and contemporary art museums. One thing I feel strongly about that the art world is lacking is a movement that's equivalent to effective altruism. I really think there should be an effective aesthetics movement, which is trying to maximize the amount of beauty people see per dollar spent. So like right now, if you fund a mural, there's a question of like how much does that mural cost and how many people will see it. But like we could actually get really scientific and think like, okay, what is the cheapest way we can make the most people see the most beauty? And that seems like a really worthwhile aesthetic uh, project because I think most people want their cities to be more beautiful. So why not figure out how to most effectively get that? You know, I think about this with regard to Central Park in Manhattan, where it's such a thing of beauty in the middle of this, you know, concrete jungle. And so many people get pleasure out of it every day. And it's so clear also that the architects and many other people who helped create it were so thoughtful about making little beautiful spots all over that are really diverse. And I feel like we could just, although Central Park is you know a massive undertaking, you can never repeat something like that. Uh, I feel like there's a lot more opportunities to do things of that nature. Absolutely. And I think people just underestimate, I was in Cleveland and there was just murals everywhere. And like just having large, beautiful paintings on the sides of buildings rather than just like cold gray stone does a lot for your feeling of the neighborhood. It feels alive and vibrant and sort of that people care about the space they're in, which is a, is a good feeling to, to inhabit. It seems like we really underutilize artists in society. There's so many wonderful artists and often they're struggling to you know, make enough money and maybe they're taking on second or third jobs. 
and yet they could be making beautiful murals that like enliven cities all the time. Yeah, I find that very strange that there's both a huge demand for it and also like both, it seems like there's lots of starving artists and people who would love to would benefit from it. I also think there's just a lot of very untalented artists out there. It's like, I would say a Sturgeon's Law situation. Sturgeon Law is that 90% of everything is, is crap basically, but there are enough insanely talented artists that cities shouldn't, I don't know, they, they are not lacking for talent. There's just maybe like a lack of will or a lack of belief that this is a, something that's worthwhile doing. Going meta on this conversation for a moment, I've been thinking a lot how people really differ in what they get the most pleasure from. And so for example, for me, I think that some of the things I get the most pleasure from are ideas. Another thing is I feel like I'm very sensitive to like touch, you know, like I enjoy, you know, being comfortable, taking a bath, a massage, like, like kind of physical sensation kind of things. And I feel like you get a ton of pleasure from like more aesthetic beauty, you know, looking at things. And then there's all these other ones too. I, I have one friend that's obsessed with smell, which is so strange to me because I think of smell as like such an inferior sense to the other senses, but she's obsessed with smell and she's constantly smelling perfumes and colognes. And uh, she actually took me to a, an event where we got to smell like 30 different scents and they didn't tell you what they were until the end. So you had to kind of think about what do I think this is? And it was su super fascinating. But uh, I think this is really underappreciated the extent to which people get derived pleasure from different things. Yeah, absolutely. I get very little from smell. I'm almost, I'm almost blind, I'm anosmic, which means I can barely smell anything. But I know people that get almost no pleasure from visual beauty. I know people that get very little from music. I think it's just, yeah, I agree with you that it's surprising how much diversity there is. One thing that is, I think, important to notice is like pleasure is not the same thing as happiness. And that like a lot of these things are giving you pleasure, but they don't necessarily make you much happier. What's the distinction you're drawing there? So happiness is like a lens on which all experiences are, it's like a prism that all experiences are translated through. So like if you're happy, then all of the experiences you have will be sort of amplified in a, with a positive valence. Whereas like pleasure is just like one unit of, of positive feeling. Isn't there a feedback loop though? Like if you're in a beautiful setting, aren't you more likely to feel happy? I think a lot of people have the experience of being really sad and having something really pleasurable happen at the same time, where you're eating a tasty meal while you're crying. And I think people have also had the reverse experience of having been incredibly happy and then every experience, no matter how bland, is kind of ecstatic. But I think there's differences in how much certain pleasurable experiences affect the mood of happiness that I'm talking about. So I think how clean and beautiful the environment you're in I think has much more effect on your entire mood than things like like how tasty the meal you're having is. Mm, interesting. But maybe this is one of those individual differences things where I'm affected by aesthetics a lot. So I, would, of course, would think that. Well, you know, I, I know someone who their entire day can be ruined by like a bad color combination, which is like just mind blowing to me. It makes no sense to me, but that's how they describe it. And I'm also quite sensitive to objects in my environment. Like when I'm working, I like to have my desk really clean. And I find it actually, it, it like reduces my cognitive capacity, having like too many objects in front of me. But then I think there are other people that just aren't that way. Like they seem to be, no matter how much clutter they're in, it seems like it doesn't bother them at all. So, you know, I suspect that there's just huge divergences on all of these variables to almost a shocking degree. And it makes it actually hard to generalize about other people's behavior. Yeah. I'm definitely trying to draw a distinction between like how good a feeling feels and how much that differs and then how deep the feeling goes. Like how much does the, like it might be the case that you feel something very strongly but it doesn't affect your overall mood of the day. Right. Like I think mood is a stabler, longer lasting thing than any individual experience. 
And like, for example, when I get a massage, it feels incredible, but I don't know how much it affects my like mood like a half hour later or something. But it could just be that there's one axis, which is how intense is the experience. And then that affects how much it affects your mood or something. Mm -hmm. So let's switch topics to talking about philosophy. I think one of the really interesting things about you is that you are good and interested in a number of different areas, everything from philosophy to psychology to aesthetics and things like this. So so what's your thought on philosophy and what, what do you like and dislike about it? Well, the things that I got out of philosophy, I would say are number one, just a humility of realizing that these problems are much harder than I thought they would be, like initially. Like, mm-hmm. I thought things like morality and consciousness and things like that are like, pretty commonsensical and that like, oh, it's not hard to solve these problems. Like the more I thought about it, I realized that like, oh, these are actually really hard problems. It's kind of amazing how we've been working on some of the same problems for like a thousand or 2000 years. And it's like, it feels to me like we've eliminated some bad answers much more than we've actually figured out the right answer to many of these things. Absolutely. And I actually was just going to say that avoiding bad philosophy is I think one of the major skills that philosophy gives you of not letting you fall into certain traps. There's just certain ideas that if you're trained in philosophy, you won't be seduced by just very simplistic binary answers. I, I don't know. I, it's hard to like explain what counts as bad philosophy, but it's kind of a, you know, it when you see it. And I think I would just be way more vulnerable to like bad ideologies if I didn't have a training in philosophy. Yeah. Another thing philosophy gave me is just reinforcing that like the principle of charity is incredibly important. Like we call it in the rationalist community steel manning, but in philosophy, they just call it the principle of charity. And I feel like that's the most important skill for intellectual life is the actual ability to understand other people's views. So can you define steel manning? A straw man argument is when you purposely make someone's argument weaker in order to knock it down. And a steel man is to purposely make someone's argument stronger in order to, like, if you were in a battle idea, you might as well battle the strongest version of it. But because we so often straw man, that usually when you steel man, you're actually just accurately capturing the other person's view. Like when you think that you're, making it stronger than it actually is, most of the time you're just actually capturing their view. So like, I think there's like an ambiguity between actually capturing someone's view and making their view better, but often it's a distinction without a difference. Yeah, and I think one thing that, that you're hinting at that's so important is that if you want to actually show an idea is wrong, truly, you have to take on the, the very best arguments for that idea, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter how many bad arguments for the idea that you refute, if you don't deal with the very best arguments. And a lot of times, if you're, if you're talking to someone about an idea and they're not an expert or someone who's really well-versed in it, the argument they give in favor of the idea is probably not the best argument for their idea. Yeah, absolutely. So it's much easier to beat that person than it is to beat the, the idea. Yeah, and I think there's like a legitimate debate about how much, when you're discussing it with an individual person, how much you should talk about their actual arguments versus how much you should try to like be like, hey, I know you're making these actual arguments, but I think there's better arguments for you and I'm going to debate those. I think there's like a, a subtle question of when you're in a one-on-one debate with someone, how much do you contend with their actual arguments versus trying to like improve their arguments for them? Well, it can be condescending to try to like steel man their argument in real time. But I think it's totally reasonable to say, hey, you know, another point in favor of what you're saying is the following and just add a point in favor. And I think generally people will appreciate that because it shows you're not trying to just beat them you're trying to actually help them formulate their idea. So there's this other idea uh, to steal alien, which is similar to steel manning, but instead of like making someone's argument better, you make their argument out of steel, but it's so different from their argument 
that it's actually an alien and not actually, <laughs> it's not It's not fair to say it's a steelman of their view. It's a, it's a completely different view that is a good argument, but it's just un unrelated to their views. And I think there's an interesting dynamic where sometimes when you're steelmanning someone, you end up steel alienating them. Right, so you're basically essentially making a different argument that's th than the one that they even intended to make or that they might identify with. Yeah, and I often put people amusingly don't mind when you do this, but I, it, it's a, a subtle question of how far can you get from their original view before <laughs> it's a steel alien instead of a steel man. It reminds me of something I've seen people do before where they'll say they agree with the person, but then they'll actually say something that indicates they disagree. So they'll be like, I agree, <laughs> but the problem with that is blah. And then, you're, and it's funny because it seems when I've just observed people do this, it seems like the other person takes it better. Like, it's like, oh, okay, they're not contradicting me, even <laughs> though the, the immediate sense after that is a contradiction. So it's funny how these like subtle elements of conversation really affect how people feel about what's being said. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, could, we should touch on that a little bit when we talk about the social skills stuff later. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Uh, I want to talk about the things I disliked about philosophy. Yeah, yeah. So what do you dislike about philosophy? So one thing I really dislike is that a lot of philosophers think that concepts can be modeled with having necessary and sufficient conditions, which basically just means the sort of strict boundaries that define a term. So they'll say like, what is knowledge or what is justice? And they'll have debates about like, the, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for knowledge and justice? And I just think this is a little bit foolish because our concepts don't work that way. Our concepts are on gradients. We do not have strict necessary and sufficient conditions that map onto our concepts. We have gradients of different, like clusters of related ideas. There's a lot of a thing called polysemy, where related ideas are like not distinguishing the brain, even though they're like subtly different. Also, people differ in their concepts through time. And also between people and between societies, there's a lot of variation in how people think about concepts. So the idea that you could sort of map out like the nature of justice or the nature of morality seems like a little silly. And it seems a little weird that a lot of philosophers are still doing this, even though it seems like an elementary mistake. That, that's really interesting. The way I think about it, I guess, is that if I say cow, in my mind, there's a, it triggers a whole slew of different things, like the idea of a cow in a field, and the idea of milk, and the idea of a calf. And like, there's this whole cluster that's like all associated with that idea. And then when I say it out loud, you hear the word cow, and then that triggers a whole host of things in your mind, many of which are probably like very similar to what's in my mind, but maybe they're weighted somewhat differently. Like maybe I, for some reason, have more emphasis on the calf than you have more on the adult cow or something like this. Uh, and then maybe I have a few con like related concepts that you don't have because of experiences I've had with cows, and you have some that I don't have. But like the, the reason we can communicate successfully when we use the word cow is because there's enough shared overlap in our clusters. Is that how you think about it or do you think about it differently? Yeah, I think that's right. But I think when you try to get, there's enough agreement that it works most of the time. But then when you try to get to the finer points of exactly the nature of cowhood, I think there's going to be a lot of times where people just fundamentally have different intuitions. But Sam, what is a cow truly? <laughs> uh, my dream for philosophy is you'd have like 10 def or like maybe even more like a whole bunch of different definitions of like let's say justice right and you just map it out as justice one justice two justice three and you like explain what the different views are and what these views entail and what the pros and cons of adopting these different views are and then just list out like and you just really collaboratively try to map out the possible idea space of like what are the ideas what like what could they be what do they entail? What are the pros and cons? And then what percentage of the population seems to hold these views? That would be seem like a collaborative effort to map out idea space 
in a way that debating the true nature of justice seems silly. I like that a lot. And it reminds me of how I think about the free will debate. Like, do we have free will? It really feels like people just mean different things by free will. And so it gets these, we get into these really confusing conversations where we're actually just talking about different thing when we're talking about free will. So like one notion of free will, like you might call it like free will one is this idea that we could somehow violate the laws of physics. Like, oh, I want to do this thing. And it's even though the laws of physics say it's not going to happen next, it's going to happen anyway, because I want to do it. And like, I think most people don't think that we have that form of free will. Like we don't, we're not actually violating the laws of physics. But another type of free will, like you might call it free will too, is the idea that when we want to do a thing, we then usually act in accordance with that thing. So it's like, I have the desire to pick up this cup and then I pick up the cup. So it's like somehow my actions map onto my desires. And, and you can see why this would be really desirable to have this because if like you want to pick up the cup and then you didn't pick up the cup, and that was kind of your general reality. That would be incredibly frustrating. So, yeah. so that you might be free will too. And then suddenly now it's like much clearer when we're having a conversation about do we have free will? If we clarify, oh, I mean free will will two. I mean free will one. And then there's probably other versions, free will three, free will four, and et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. It would just make these debates much clearer. And part of the reason why the debates are so endless in thousands of years is that they don't try to dissolve the debates by being like, okay, well, you mean X, I mean Y. There's no fact of the matter about how terms should be used because there isn't like a sky dictionary where our concepts come from. Like we get to sort of determine how our language works. And like there are facts about how often concepts are used and what percentage of the population holds certain views. And there's facts about like what views people would adopt if they thought about it more. But like there is no fact about like the correct definition of free will. Like that's just a, just a weird mistake that people make. You can imagine better or worse definitions. Like for example, you can imagine free will to be like an animal with four legs and whatever, right? So like there's definitions that definitely we don't want to use because they don't correspond to the thing we're trying to talk about. Yeah. And then there's ones that might be more useful in certain contexts, like pragmatically, you know, so you can, you can, I think you can have criteria to say some definitions are better or worse, but that's a little bit different, I think, than what philosophers are often trying to do. Well, so I thought a lot about the free will debate, and it seems like a lot of the compatibilists and incompatibilists, what they're actually debating when they get right down to it is like, what would be the pragmatic consequences of in a world where we talk about dessert language versus a world where we don't? So like Sam Harris thinks that we should not talk about people deserving things and that things would be like a better, kinder society, whereas Daniel Dennett thinks we should use that language. Now, that's an empirical social science question of like, which communities tend to be happier when they use one set of norms about talking about deservingness versus another set of terms talking about deservingness. Right, it almost doesn't even have anything to do with the philosophy question at that point. Yeah, exactly. Like once you've cleared out what you mean by your terms and you've clarified idea space, a lot of what matters to people is just empirically what happens when people use different conceptual schemes and like how that affects their interpersonal relationships. And I think that's a very like wonderful empirical question that we should study. Like you have a, an idea about like philosophical disorders. Well, like there's maybe a lesser thing of just empirically, what do different philosophical ideas, how do they affect people's lives? Like the philosophical disorders are the ones that really affect your life negatively. But then there's like, just generally how do different ideas affect people's lives empirically? It's like a very worthwhile psychological enterprise. We've been collaborating with a, on a project with David Yaden and his colleagues where we actually Create a, we create a test that tries to test people's philosophical beliefs, but explained in a way that's for lay people who are not philosophers to try to help them map out what they believe is philosophically true. But there's also this optional section at the end based on their work, where we ask you psychological questions. And then 
we show you the relationship that they found between these psychological questions and <laughs> these philosophical questions. Like, for example, you know, it, it, does, does your personality actually affect whether you're likely to believe in free will and, and questions like that. So that's a kind of a, a fun project we're doing together. I'm excited to go release that test. That's really fun. It kind of reminds me of how the antinatalists often get asked whether they're like depressed. Like the people that think that life isn't worth living, they are often asked like, I mean, are you depressed? If you weren't depressed, would you feel this way? And I've seen at least one philosopher take offense at this. Of like, this has nothing to do with whether antinatalism is true or false. <laughs> like, this is pure ad hominem. Like, <laughs> but I do think it's a fascinating empirical question. Right. Well, you know, there's one question is, are there correlations between people's psychology and their philosophical beliefs? But then another question is, is it causal, right? Like, because, you know, you want to believe that you believe things for good reasons and based on evidence and so on. And then this idea that, oh, well, maybe my, if my personality is linked to what I believe is true about the world, and I didn't choose my personality, maybe that kind of undermines my beliefs to some degree. But on the other hand, there may also be a sense in which it's just predictive, but not causal. So it doesn't necessarily interfere with that chain of like the, of believing for good reason. Yeah. Something I think people don't appreciate enough is like the views of actual philosophers are in some sense like data about how people's views change in, in reaction to hearing lots of philosophical arguments. Now, there's always the problem of selection effects that like the people that found these arguments plausible went into philosophy. And like, that's definitely a problem here, but it's also just very fascinating that like, what kinds of views do people expose to all these different philosophical views? How does that tend to systematically change their views? And so like philosophers themselves are a great source of data on which to study how different ideas and being exposed to different ideas affects your worldview. Yeah, and it seems to me that if there's a really, like a well-known view that almost no philosophers agree with, it's probably decent evidence that there's something really wrong about that view. Yeah. Whereas if you look at David Chalmers' still survey paper, we actually survey his philosophers and what they believe, there actually is a really wide level of disagreement on many of the important topics in philosophy. So that's also interesting to see that there's really not consensus on, on many of the most important questions. But actually, I, I want to go back to a moment for this, to this idea of philosophers like arguing over what seems like it might be semantics. Because I think we can both agree that philosophers tend to be really, really smart. Like some of the smartest people, I think, are philosophers. And yeah. they also know about semantic debates. It's not like, oh, I've never thought about the fact that we, you know, semantic debates are a problem where you're just arguing over definitions, right? So can you steal, man, this perspective that they're taking? Of why do they have these debates that seem semantic when they're both really smart and they know about semantic debates? Is there some, could there be some good justification for it? So here are the fences I've heard of the, of the practice. One is... Like, no, I'm not talking about my concept of justice. I'm actually trying to capture what justice is, which I can see that's a move you want to make in debate space, but it seems like a little bit foolish to talk about what justice is independent of our concept of what justice is. Yeah, what does that mean, what justice is, truly? Like, imagine I said, hey, I don't, I'm not trying to talk about the concept of elephants. I'm trying to talk about actual elephants. Like, that's something you, a biologist yeah. would say. And then... I could then say like, no, you're talking about like, it depends on what you mean by elephants to what counts as what you're talking about. Like I, I could make like a move of like, well, what right. I mean by elephants is penguins. And they're like, no, I'm talking about elephants, actual elephants. So they might say something like, no, I'm talking about actual justice, not like your concept of justice. I think that is like a little bit suspect just because what we count as justice is so much determined by the concepts we're using to like point to a thing in reality. Right, we can't just point at an elephant and be like, I mean that thing, right? There, you can't do yeah. that with justice, right? Yeah, exactly. And it, they might say, well, you can, but that just seems a little dubious. And then 
the other idea is like saying like, Hey, we're trying to map out our concept space as best we can. And like, we get like, I am trying to actually understand what my concepts about justice are. Maybe I'm not talking about the eternal concept of justice, but like there's a deep fact about how my psychology thinks about justice. And like, we can talk about it with some subtlety. But most of it seems like philosophers mostly don't think they're doing psychology. So I'm not sure that they would agree with the, the fact that they're doing that. What do you think? Yeah. So like, I think they think they're doing one of three things. They're either talking about the thing itself, talking about the concept or like their concept of the thing, or they're talking about what the concept should be, which the third thing is like here, if we use the term this way, it would have all these advantages. Mm -hmm. And like, I think it does make sense to talk about the pros and cons of different conceptual schemes, as I said earlier. And I think it does kind of make some sense to analyze your own concepts of things. But just in general, I want a little more collaboration of philosophers and like realizing that like, hey, we're not going to, there's diminishing returns on our ability to like elucidate our concepts and that we should just be trying to like map out the possibility space here. I like that idea a lot. It seems to me that sometimes what philosophers are trying to do is something like say, okay, we have these shared intuitions, hopefully they're shared about what justice is or what free will is or something like that. Can we find a definition that like matches our intuition and, and doesn't contradict it or something like that? What do you think about that approach? So I think like philosophers have done the mapping thing with free wills such that like all the possible views have been named at this point. And well, like all the views are at least compatibilism and incompatible, like any idea that we don't have free will are like internally self-consistent. And I think philosophers should often move on to new domains such as like coolness or like fun and like try to actually map out possible like self-coherent possibilities for defining these terms. Like once we've mapped out the space of free will, then like move on to other domains that haven't been mapped out as well, I think is like a really, like a, a useful skill and like trying to map out what our concept of fun is that matches our intuitions and isn't self-contradictory would be really good. But once you've already done that, I just, there is no fact of the matter about how we should define fun or how we should defend, define cool or how should we define free will. There's no sky dictionary, as I like to say. You know, I like that idea a lot of, of things like what makes a game fun. And, and I've actually thought about that a bit. And I realized there's, there's a lot of things you can say about that. You know, it seems like, oh, well, fun is totally amorphous, but actually like, there are many things you could say that make a game more fun, all else being equal. So, so just as an example, one of them is that if it was always obvious who would win, that wouldn't be fun, right? Like, I think we can agree on that. Yeah. Another is that it's, it's a lot of fun when there's a chance of coming back. Like if one player gets a lead early, let's say, they, you know, just from skill, and then, you know, for the next hour, they just crush the other player. Like, I think we can all agree that's not fun. And then once you start mapping out these traits, you know, some of them might be more debatable, but I actually think you could probably list five to 10 that a lot of people would agree on and you can really start to define fun to some degree. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I think philosophers are good at conceptual analysis and just need to extend it to more domains and not just keep talking about the same domains over and over. I'd like to see philosophers do more work in psychology because yeah. I see many cases when I'm reading psychology papers where I'm like, oh, we really need a philosopher here to help us understand what we're talking about. Because you know, when you're uh, psychologists are often really good at like the empirical side, but yeah. sometimes on the concepts of like, okay, what do we mean by personality? And what are, and, and going back to your point, what are all the things we mean by personality? What are the different possible ways we could define personality and differentiate that from, let's say, behavior or let's say a mental move or a mental, a mental habit or things like that? And, and just being able to map each of those out really precisely seems like it would benefit psychological reasons. Absolutely. And 
I've actually noticed that like philosophers of X, like philosophers of biology, philosophers of economics, I tend to like their work a lot more than like pure philosophers because then they're like taking the skills of conceptual analysis and applying it to a new domain that where it will be useful. So like philosophers will go into the units of selection debate and discuss like, well, what do we mean by a unit of selection? Or like, what do we mean by a market? And I find that work to be very fruitful. Yeah, I think a lot of times they could point out ways that people were previously too imprecise, leading to ambiguity or even contradiction in some cases. Absolutely. Are world events affecting your mental health? Try Uplift. The Boston Globe said this app could be the future of mental health, and it's used by thousands of people. In a study on Uplift, users felt an average of 52% better in just one month. It comes with 12 interactive and information-packed sessions that help you master well-being skills that are typically taught in therapy. You do the sessions independently, but the Uplift narrator feels like you've got a compassionate mentor guiding you towards long-lasting success the entire way. You'll also have a toolbox of mood-boosting techniques in your pocket at all times that you can use to feel immediate relief when you need it. The first session and several tools are free, and you can try the full program with a seven-day trial. Discover Uplift and feel happier, calmer, and mentally stronger. To find out more and to get started, visit uplift.app. That's uplift.app. So let's change topics uh, to that of social skills. And I'd love to hear about your journey in learning social skills. Yeah. So when I was really young, I had pretty bad social skills and I was <laughs> picked on a lot because of it. So this is fascinating to me because I think of you as someone with incredibly good social skills. Just for reference, for those listening, I mean, Sam's the sort of person that can go into a bar, make friends with total strangers with no effort, and then you know have a fantastic night with people he's never met before. So that's like the kind of person we're talking about now. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, I mean, it's taken a lot of practice. So when I, so I was a kid, I was very very bad social skills, and through high school, I decided like, hey, instead of focus on academics, I'm going to like focus on like what it is to be likable. And I like tried a lot of things and it was really awkward at first because I would like mimic people and do all sorts of like weird experiments and uh, a lot of it didn't work. But eventually I like figured out like the most important things. And for me, they were just noticing subtext was the most, was the number one thing. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah. And explain what that means. So whenever someone talks to you, they're they also want something. So are they are they flirting with you? Are they complimenting you? Are they like requesting something? Are they trying to insult you? Like, what are they trying to do with this interaction? But a lot of times it could be something simpler, like, oh, they're just friendly. being friendly or yeah, or just like, yeah, oh, yeah. we're just having a comfortable, relaxing time, right? It's like- Yeah, but very often, like what is this person getting at and what do they want is like the thing you should be most focused on. And like what they literally say is much less important than like, oh, this person wants to be complimented right now, or this person wants their idea critiqued, or this person, like thinking about like what it is they plausibly want and what they're trying to do in this interaction. That reminds me of how people often will, someone will ask a question like, oh, how are you doing? And then every once in a while, someone like takes it way too literally. And they're like, they treat it as like, oh, this person wants to actually know how I'm doing. So I'm going to tell them. Whereas like, clearly what the person is doing is they're just like, doing a greeting and they're trying to get the conversation started, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like thinking about like, okay, would this person enjoy if I was like, is this a time where a person would enjoy silliness? Would they not enjoy silliness? Like having sort of a background reading of like reading the room of like what people would want out of this interaction right now 
was the thing that I was sorely lacking, which I think just means I was like a little bit on the spectrum that I like trained myself out of, that I was unable to like intuitively read people's minds in this way. But it was mainly through just experimentation that you were able to learn it. Were there any kind of explicit things you learned? So it's one of these weird things where like, once I started noticing subtext as a thing, my ability to see it became better. It's almost like when a chess player gets better at chess, they're, it's easier for them to see moves or they're easier to like spot bad moves or something. The more I saw subtext as a thing to be noticed, my like acuity at noticing it improved in a sort of feedback loop. Yeah, right. Maybe maybe your subconscious was like, oh, this is an important thing. So I'm going to like devote more resources to, to paying attention. Yeah, I'm going to track it more. Absolutely. This reminds me of something that I've been experimenting with lately, which is when I'm in a conversation, trying to get a meta awareness going of like, I am in a conversation with Sam right now and have like a little part of my attention on that fact. And it, I find that it changes the dynamic of the conversation in a really interesting way where suddenly I'm like, what, do we, what are we trying to do? What are we getting out of this conversation? And it, it actually helps me make the conversation better because I'm more aware of like, this is an opportunity and we're doing something together. Let's make it a good version of that thing and not just, we're just saying words back to, to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a very valuable skill. And the thing that I find is like the biggest social skill failure that I see in my life isn't the like, well, it's sort of like a mind reading failure, but it's more like they don't notice that the thing they're saying isn't adding much to the other person. Did you entertain them? Did you teach them anything? Like, did you, what did you do right now when you said that? Like, what is, what did you try to accomplish? Oftentimes what I'm trying to do in a conversation is either like, make someone feel better or I'm trying to entertain them or I'm trying to tell them something cool. You see what I'm saying? And like tracking the fact that like I could, what, what is my, like people often just bore people <laughs> without thinking like, Oh, does this person want to hear this right now? And I find that's like a pretty common failure. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I find fascinating is when people will just talk 90% of the time in the conversation. And what really confuses me about it is that, it seems like a lot of times they don't notice they're doing it. And now, to be fair, I am totally guilty of doing this at times. And the, the times I'm most likely to do it is when I'm really excited about something and I kind of get like too wrapped up in it. And I'm like, oh shit, I've just been talking for a long time. Oops. Um, but what do you think is going on there when people tend to hog conversations? Because it seems like it's usually not in that person's own interest to do that. Because I, I, I happen to know, I actually ran a study on this, people find it quite annoying. And generally speaking, the vast majority of people prefer to talk somewhere between 40 and 60% of the time in a conversation and not talk like 10% of the time. And they, they, they find that quite off-putting usually. Yeah, so I think the person who talks too much often thinks that they're being very impressive and that, like, that's what they're trying to achieve is like, hey, notice how impressive my thoughts are. And they don't realize that like that trades off against like likability or something like that. Right, it seems like most people would rather you talk 60% of the time and then, you know, but, but express interest in them and ask them questions for the other 40%, then that you talk 90% of the time and come across as really impressive, right? Yeah, and also sometimes people just are so focused on the thought in their head, they're not focusing on like, does this person want to hear this? Is this, have been going on for a while? Are they bored? Which is why the like humming in the background, what does this, like, what are we doing in this interaction right now is so useful because you can just easily get lost in your idea. Yeah, and I feel like building a little mental habit of just checking in on the other person every once in a while, like every minute or two minutes or whatever, just like noticing the other person. What, what, what does the person look like right now? What do they seem to be experiencing? That just draws you back into the like, okay, have I been talking too long? Have I not said enough? You know, uh, you know what, what's actually going on in the interaction? Do they seem bored? Do they seem intrigued? I also find a fascinating thing. If you pay really close attention to another person when they're talking, 
you can often notice a sort of gradient in what they want to talk about. And, and I imagine people differ in their skill at like picking up on this, but it's sort of, uh, it's sort of like, oh, they just said that thing with like an extra level of intensity that suggests to me that that's the thing that they'd rather talk about right now, not the other thing they said right before that. And then you could follow that gradient. If you want to like really get into a, a deeper conversation with the person, you could try to follow that gradient of like whatever they seem most excited about in their voice or they seem to have the most focus on, you just ask them a follow-up question about that. And you're kind of, that's, I find an interesting kind of strategy for making conversations deeper. Absolutely. I think that's a great strategy. And I think people with good social skills just intuitively notice like when people's eyes light up and then just follow that. And I've also noticed a separate skill, which is <laughs> related of like, if you're no, if noticing that if the conversation is going totally boring, you can just completely switch the conversation. And if you can guess that they'll find this new topic better, people will often thank you for it. They like, they won't verbally say thank you, but they will be happier. And people feel too constrained with following the normal flow of the conversation. Yeah, I think that's a good point. But it does, I think, feel like there's some risk there. Like if you go on some weird tangent and the person doesn't enjoy it, it feels like you've taken a greater risk than if you just stick to the boring topics everyone talks about where it's like, okay, there's not going to be much reward, but also there doesn't feel like there's much risk to that. What do you think about that? Well, I think as you just practice social skills, you get like a better sense of like what kinds of people like what kinds of conversations and like what will likely be a good move here and like what will likely entertaining here in the same way that like as you get better at dancing you have like a better sense of like what dance moves people will like to be danced at it's just a similar conversational dance thing that you can get better at and figure out like what people want to talk about and be entertained by well it also speaks to the extreme importance of the meta awareness of like what's happening in the conversation because if you try a bunch of things but you're not aware acutely of how the other person's responding you don't learn because you don't have a feedback loop to be, get better at the dance moves right but if yeah. every time you make a dance move you're like oh that move worked or that move ah didn't work so well then you can create that feedback that hones your skill i also think it's important to take small steps if you go from like we're talking about the weather to like we're talking about some crazy thing my craziest experience in my life i think people will tend to find that more off-putting than if you kind of slowly push in that direction. And then you're mindful of like, okay, does this other person push it back to something more normal? Or does yeah. this other person kind of go with the direction I'm going, in which case I have freedom now to push even further. Yeah, so like as soon as you talk about weather, you can be like, oh, did you hear about that tornado in Idaho? And they're like, no, I'm like, oh, have you ever seen a tornado in real life? And then that like quickly opens up the topic of like experiencing extreme natural disasters. It doesn't feel that like off-putting because you went from weather to tornadoes to your experience with tornadoes. It's really funny, but there seems like to be a set of rules to human conversation that we never really talk about. But one of those rules is like, unless you know someone well, you're not supposed to completely jump to another topic unexpectedly. You're supposed to somehow make the conversation flow between topics where like, it seems like, oh, you said X, I'm going to react to X. Maybe I'll say Y, but at least the other person can, can connect X and Y. They, they get the connection. Like, oh, go from weather to tornadoes. Okay, that makes sense. But going from weather to tomatoes, it's like, what the hell are you talking about, right? When you know <laughs> someone really well, you can be like, oh, by the way, I just had this thought. What do you think of it? And that seems to be okay. What, what do you think about the rules of conversation? I think a lot of that rule is like not real in a sense of like, as long as you acknowledge, when someone says something and you acknowledge that their con contribution with, was worthwhile, you now have a you think you're constrained by the flow of the conversation, but you actually have the freedom to go wherever you want. So if someone says something about the weather and you're like, oh yeah, it's really nice weather. I don't know. They say something, you're like, oh, that's a really good point. And then you're like, oh, by the way, did you hear about this thing? I think that's like almost always kosher. Like the problem with changing subjects radically is you don't acknowledge and validate their contributions as being worthwhile. But as long as you do that, 
think you have a lot of freedom. That's interesting. So I don't fully agree because I do think there's such a thing as a jarring transition and that will throw off the other person. And I suspect that it, if I'm right about that, that it comes down to something about trust or wanting to know the person you're with is like predictable. So it's like, imagine you just met a stranger, right? You don't know what this person might do. And you want to build up like a mental model of like them being predictable so that you can be like, oh, this person's not going to just suddenly stab me when I turn my back. Okay. It's not like we really think most people are going to stab us, but on some level, you know, we're animals and we're afraid of like, you know, another human could be a threat. And I think there's something going on there where we're trying to make sure this person seems predictable and that we're somehow breaking that if we're too jarring with someone we just met. What do you think about that? Hmm. I'll just say that in my experience, I'm a very rapid jumper from topic to topic and it doesn't seem to, I don't seem to be punished by it. Well, I have, a th- I have a theory about why that works for you, which is that I think there are more sophisticated social ways to jump radically that don't trigger that like this person is an unpredictable person that's like potentially, you know, a little bit scary. And what you gave a really nice example where it see the way that you described that a moment ago of switching topics, it seemed like oh, I know what happened. Sam just got really excited about this thing that he remembered and he wanted to share it with me, which feels like not that weird. Another, another example that I like to do is, let's say I've read something interesting lately. I find that people are pretty cool with you being like, oh, by the way, I read this really interesting thing. I wonder what you think about it. It feels, although it's very like jumpy and you're tra- transitioning topics really rapidly, it's very relatable. Whereas if you just say, by the way, I heard this thing about tomatoes, people are like, whoa, what's going on? They can't relate to the transition. I, I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think it's, you're probably better off if you like take a word from the like one or two preceding sentences they said. And like, like if they mention something about vegetables, then like keep your topic on vegetables. Or if they say something about their mom, you talk about moms. Like that's like a pretty safe bet. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just think that you can sit, like, as long as you validate someone, I, I guess I just share, have the intuition that you can be like, Hey, I had this cool thought. What do you think about it? And as long as you have a big smile on your face, and you're making it clear that you care about their input, they will welcome your new topic, even if it's a, a radical. Like, I think the smiling helps. I think the like validating them helps. But as long as you're like showing them you want to interact with them, but you just want to talk about something else, I think that they are okay with that. That's my, that's my lived experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I was younger, I definitely didn't smile enough. And it wasn't that I didn't have positive feelings towards people. I did. It just for some reason, like my face is not that expressive. So what I eventually learned is that that actually stresses people out because they would say something and kind of expect a smile or I would greet them, you know, we'd run, bump into each other and I greet them and they expect a smile. And my lack of smiling actually made them feel like maybe I didn't like them or I didn't approve what they were saying or something like that. So I've gotten much better at just expressing what I feel internally on my face, uh, which doesn't come as naturally. But now that I've been doing it for a while, it actually is coming more, you know, it comes more and more naturally. And I think that was actually a huge improvement. And so I think your point about a smile on your face, especially if it feels genuine, is actually really powerful and can go a long way towards like bridging any kind of awkwardness or weird transitions or things like that. And I feel like the best way to do that is not to force a fake smile, but just try to think like, how do I feel about this person? Like, can I just like manifest that rather than being like, let me pull my lips into a taut, you know, curved line or something like that. A thing I think about for that is like in the same way people go to dog parks and they're like, oh, look at that dog. He's so happy. Look at that dog. He's, he's just like, he's so hungry. And they like have like a sort of like, <laughs> think about dogs in a sort of cutesy wootsy way. You can like go to a party and think about people that way. Like, oh, look at that person. They're so like, they're, they just want attention. Oh, they, they're, they're so horny. They're, they're like, they're so happy. Like, and just like think of the people as like you would at a dog park and you're like able to like 
empathize and love them as creatures <laughs> in a separate way. And I think that it helps liking people. At one time I brought a friend of mine to a party who's very socially savvy, much more so than I am. And we were kind of thinking, oh, should we talk to someone here? And I asked her who should, we should talk to. And she literally just does an analysis of the room. She's like, well, that person is really engaged in that conversation, so we shouldn't bother them. That person's bored and is trying to get out of that conversation. So we should, as soon as they turn slightly more to the right, we should like go engage them. And I was like, what are you doing right now? I like, it was like magic to me. I had no, I mean, I, I couldn't for sure verify that she was correct, but the fact that she was able even to pick up on these things was amazing to me. Yeah, I definitely, when I go to parties, think about those dynamics as well. I, I think they're very real. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to test them empirically, like with controls and stuff. But yeah, I definitely get the sense that you can tell if someone's bored in a conversation that wants to escape or like, where are their feet pointing? Are they pointing towards the person they're talking to? Or are they pointing away? Stuff like that. One of the most useful heuristics I ever heard for having better conversations, if, if like your goal is to have really good conversations with someone is, is to just periodically ask yourself, like, what do I think this person wants to talk about? Yeah. Right. And, and that's not like the optimal form of conversation because the optimal is going to be more like a give and take where you're like, you're, you know, more taking into account what do I want to talk about, what do they want to talk about, let's find the best intersection. But I think for someone who's like building up their social skills and like trying to get better at conversation, that loop of like, what do I think this other person wants to talk about is like a really helpful formulation of it, of conversation. What do you think about that? Yeah, 100%. Definitely. I, I also have a point though about like, just because I was able to learn social skills, you, like it doesn't mean that everyone can learn social skills, but I think I have this thing called the, the parable of the bike chain where like a bike can't rot, like can't go forward if the chain falls off, but that doesn't mean like, but it's still an easy fix. Whereas like if you're, if you're, if you don't have wheels at all, it's a much more difficult fix. And so like my social skill problem was like, Oh, I had to notice subtext, but like some people have like, a lot of different problems all at once with their social skills. Like they don't have confidence. They don't like people. They find like people scary. Do you know what I'm saying? So like, yeah. I, I, I definitely have some empathy that like, I don't think that everyone can learn social skills the way I was, just because I went from terrible to good, doesn't mean everyone can make that transition the way I did. Let's say someone really is bad at social skills and there's like two, you know, it's not just a broken bike chain that can be just, you know, put back on, but there's a lot, you know, the front tires missing and the handlebars all wonky and so on. What can they do to be better socially even though they can't repair all those deficits. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that the loop you said of like, does this person want to talk about this is like an am amazing trick. There, there is a book called The Charisma Myth, which has the like three main components of charisma, which is uh, status and power as one, presence as in like being able to f uh, focus on the person, and then warmth was the third thing they thought. And I think that like a good safe bet is just like, thinking about which of those three is your like weak point like are you able to focus on people are you being warm enough are you you seem too like low mm -hmm. status and i think like those are very good first steps in improving your social skills because they're so fundamental i like that a lot and i think it's also worth thinking about examples of those like power and status you might think about like imagine you're in the room with like vladimir putin right like you know it's like well people are going to talk to him and want, want to talk to him out of interest they might be afraid of him. They might hate him, but like there's some, you know, there's a commanding presence. Even if you think he's evil, there's a commanding presence that's born out of power, right? And yeah. then a complete contrast with that is something like the Dalai Lama, where the Dalai Lama, people say that when you're with him, I've never met him, but people say he's just incredibly present. It's like you feel like you're the only person in the room with him, even though it's probably you know, a huge room full of people waiting to meet him or something like that. Yeah. And then on the, on the flip side, you can imagine, you know, the maximum warm person who just like, 
when you meet them, they're just, they just feel like they're so happy to see you. Like, like, you know, a great example of this would probably be like, you know, your dog is just like the happiest <laughs> in the world when you walk in the room and the dog just is like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And then you feel so special and great. Right. And, and so you're just trying to, you know, embody those three different aspects and see how you can improve. I think that's really nice. Yeah. I, I would add a fourth thing to those three, not to like overcomplicate it, but I think emotional contagiousness. So like how much you're able to, like how much, how animated you are and how much you're able to get your emotions to, into the person you're talking to is I think a fourth component of charisma. That's a great point because we, you know, emotions go both ways, right? Like we, when we're talking to someone, we're going to adapt a little bit of their emotion usually, and they're going to adapt a little bit of ours. So it's like, if they're seem really down the dumps, we're probably not going to act super energetic. Like it just feels off. Right. Yeah. But if we're super energetic and they're kind of at a neutral, maybe they'll become more energetic and like, and, and as you point out, there's a level at which some people are better at like spreading their feeling. And I think some of the, I think often the people that seem the most fun are those that like you, you hang out with them and they just like get your energy going and they get you excited about life and they get you curious and somehow they make you feel that, that energetic state that they're feeling. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of it is just how animated they are. Like it's hard to not have it rub off if they're like making big gestures and their tone of voice is like, yeah, let's go. Hell yeah. Like it's hard not to feel their feelings because they're, they're, they're blasting them into the world. A, a fun empirical fact is that apparently people that are very charismatic are very good at charades. Like it doesn't seem like it would be the same skill, but apparently mm. just like <laughs> charades, like the ability to like pretend to be things in an animated way seems like probably the causal link. Oh, that's interesting. Well, you know, I think about with that kind of person, imagine you know, your stereotypical like 80s movie and there's like the party guy, right? Who gets out, who, who really genuinely makes everyone have more fun at the party. Like what is that person really doing? It's like they're having a lot of fun and then they're contaminating everyone else with their positive emotional state. Like, yeah, this is the best. Like, let's dance. Let's, you know, right? There, there's something about the party guy. And then it's like, you've got the opposite person who's just like, looks bored, sitting in the corner, looks mopey. And they're actually making the party worse, right? Yeah, so yeah. I think it's fascinating to think about that emotional contagion. So let's switch topics to polyamory. I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that. And also, would you mind just defining polyamory for those that don't know what it means? So polyamory is just like consensually having more than one romantic partner. So most people think that like you can only, if you're a man, you can have one partner and that's your romantic partner. And polyamory is like, no, like both you and your partner could have multiple partners and there's nothing, there's no reason not to do it. So for those who don't know, how does this differ than polygamy? So polygamy is usually one man with many wives and the the wives are often not allowed to have other boyfriends. So there's a, a lack of symmetry there, which is a little bit lame and polygamy often assumes like marriage whereas polyamory you don't have to be married to the person yeah one of the things i've heard people say about polyamory which is really interesting is that like comparing monogamy to polyamory is a little bit about comparing chickens to non-chickens in the in the sense that like chickens is a very small class of things and non-chickens is a really huge class it could like involve all kinds of things like cows and bridges <laughs> and vases right whereas like so you, we might think like, oh, monogamy and polyamory are like equally sized classes or something like that. But actually polyamory probably includes many, many, many different things. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's a fun thought, but I actually think it's probably wrong. I think there's probably lots of different kinds of monogamy too. And I think we just don't often give them terms. Like some people are so jealous of their, in their monogamous relationship that they don't let their female partner have male friends versus not. That's a different kind of monogamy. Or like monogamy where like porn is allowed versus not allowed. Or monogamy where... 
like they only see each other once a week versus they see each other like 24 seven. You see what I'm saying? Those are very different kinds of relationships that are all sort of conflated under the term monogamy. That's a good point. You know, there's lots and lots of gradations. But that being said, with polyamory, it just seems like there's fundamentally more combinations because there's more than two parties involved. Yeah. So I I, I was being a little contrarian. I think it's fundamentally like correct that there's just like a lot of, there's a lot more variation. I also think that polyamory just makes you ask the question, what do I actually want my relationships to look like? Which I think monogamous people can use too. They can just say like, oh, wait. I don't need to run on autopilot. I can actually make the rules of my relationship whatever is optimal for the two of us. It seems like often we default to what we think a relationship is supposed to be like. We're like, oh, a relationship involves like X, Y, Z. Okay, that's what we'll do by default. But then it's like, well, actually you can design your relationship. And there's many, many variations and and permutations. Actually, I think it might be helpful for you to talk about a little bit about like different forms of polyamory. Yeah, so like, I think one main distinction is between like, hierarchical and non-hierarchical poly. So hierarchical poly is like, I do that, where I have a wife who's like, I'm really deeply committed to, but then I have other partners who I'm less committed to, but I still care about deeply. But there's like a sense of stability that I get where like, I know at the end of the day, like if I move, who's going to move with me? And like, who am I building my life around? Right. So you have a primary partner who you're committed to. And I imagine if a secondary partner was jeopardizing that primary relationship, like you might have to end that secondary relationship. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And with the non, like non relationship with this non hierarchical, it's much more flexible and like thinking about what does this relationship need to be for both of us at this given time. It's very flexible. It's saying like, okay, like what do we actually, what is the best for us to right now? It, it's very fluid and like, well, what feels right for the two of us? What do we both need? And relies a lot of communication. I think there's lots to be said for that, but I personally enjoy this sort of stability that I get from the having a primary partner that I feel like is my life partner. I have to say the only examples of polyamorous couples that have lasted a really long time, like, you know, five plus years that I know of, have been the hierarchical form where they have a primary that they're like very committed to and then they have secondary partners. But that being said, I'm sure there are examples of the more flexible kind lasting a long time. I just, I'm not as aware of it. But with your situation, I imagine you have like full communication, like you're primary partner knows about your secondary partners. Do you actually introduce them to each other? Yeah, I mean, my secondary partner lives with me right now with Eloise, and so... So you're basically, your primary and your secondary both live in the same house together with you. Correct. And my wife's boyfriend. So it's like a, it's a four-person little quadrupod where we both have a primary and secondary, you know? So I, I imagine to a lot of people who've never met someone who's poly, this idea might be mind blowing that like the four of you, yeah, you, your wife, your girlfriend and your wife's boyfriend could all live together happily. I think ma- many people would imagine this is like some kind of nightmare scenario. So what are the dynamics like what, between let's say you and your wife's boyfriend and between your wife and your girlfriend and so on? We all get along just famously. Like <laughs> uh, I think that this dynamic wouldn't work if any of us were like, if we liked fighting. All of us enjoy like clear communication and being chill. But if any of us were like really intensely emotional and enjoyed arguing, I think it would ruin the dynamic. I've actually found that when people try to get other people to become poly that aren't already poly, that it tends to like, it's very hard to like, to get someone who's not already comfortable with that dynamic to become comfortable with it. I don't know what's going on with that. But yeah, like all of us were already poly and already pretty chill people. And there's not much to fight about. Okay, what about jealousy though? Because that's the natural question. It's like, okay, you're spending the night with your girlfriend and your wife feels like seeing you that night. Like, 
you know, you can imagine there's a lot of opportunities for jealousy to flare up. And I think to a lot of people, just the idea that their partner might be having sexual relations with another person might make them insanely jealous. Just that concept by itself. So what are your thoughts on jealousy? So I think that like in the same way that if you're like in a room with an annoying noise for lo- or a bad smell long enough, you don't smell it anymore. I think jealousy has a similar thing where you're like, if you <laughs> are poly for long enough, you just kind of get used to that feeling and it's not, doesn't even feel bad. I don't even really feel a jealousy I, like I used to anymore just because I've like been poly for so long. So at the beginning, did you feel significant jealousy? Yeah, I felt a lot of jealousy at the beginning. And, and why did you, so, but you, why did you keep pushing through that? Why did you continue being poly? I just felt like the benefits of having like fun new partners outweighed the costs of jealousy and it was, Simple cost-benefit analysis. So I think a lot of people might think, well, like poly is kind of like being a swinger. It's like, oh, I've got, you know, my, especially hierarchical poly. It's like, I've got my main partner and then like I have fun on the side. Could you comment on like the difference between polyamory and being a swinger? Well, being a swinger seems to be just about having sex on the side. Whereas poly is like your, even hierarchical poly, your secondary partner can be whatever you guys decide it is. It's very open-ended. What I like about poly is that they have a very large flexibility for like kinds of relationships. Like there's a term called common, which means, hey, when we're in the same city together, we're, we're basically dating. But when we're not in the same city, we're basically not dating, <laughs> which is like a, a lovely term uh, for a kind of interaction you can have with a person. And uh, yeah, I, don't know, I just think there's a lot of flexibility and you you get to decide what your relationship looks like. No one besides you and your, per- your person you're dating is in charge of what you want your dynamic to be. What about romantic feelings? Because I, I think a common thing people might say is, well, okay, I could see how you might like have sex with multiple people, but you can't really be in love or have like strong romantic feelings toward multiple people. What do you say about that? I mean, that just seems very implausible given that people love multiple siblings, people love multiple pets. Like it just seems like given how love works in other domains, it seems unlikely that it wouldn't work the same in this domain. Well, but wouldn't you say there's a difference between romantic love and, you know, let's say fraternal love or something like that? I think there's lots of different kinds of love. I think there's the like initial excitement when you're first someone that's like a mixture of lust and extreme excitement and anticipation. The new relationship energy idea? Yeah. And then there's the kind of love where you've been together for 30 years and you're completely loyal to them and you would die for them. I think there's like love where you just, whenever you see them, you're happy to see them. I think there's just Love is an incredibly ambiguous word. It means lots of different things. But can you have, do you, in your experience, can you have strong romantic feelings for two people simultaneously? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, think th- I think that is a thing that even monogamous people would, it's weird for them to den- deny it, given how common the love triangle trope is in media of like, this person loves two people and they have to choose. It's a, good, it's a good point, but I think a lot of people do deny it. They think, oh, well, it, I think they think of love as like sort of more zero sum. But uh, I agree with you. I don't think it's zero sum. Like, I think someone can genuinely deeply love two people and it doesn't necessarily, loving one does not necessarily interfere with loving the other. Just like loving one sibling doesn't make you love the other sibling. And to push back against like some polyamory rhetoric, a lot of poly people say like, it's infinite. It's not zero sum at all. Like, I don't think I could love romantically four people at the same time. Like, I think that would just be, like, I don't think I would really deeply feel the same way about them because I just not have the emotional energy Hmm. to like. Like maybe if we were all lived together and I could see them all the time, then I could do that. But there's something about like, I don't have enough like emotional energy in the day to like think about all four people very in a very positive way. There's something that feels like it's not truly non-zero sum. Right. And clearly time is zero sum, right? You yeah. only have so much time. So the more partners you have, you're, you essentially are taking away time from another partner at some point, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, 
I've never found, I've found that having two partners is like optimal for me, like a wife and a girlfriend. When I start having more, I find that like the relationships start degrading in quality because I don't pay enough attention to each individual partner. And that just is like a fact about my time and how I'm able to like divvy up my affection. Would you say that you're friends with your wife's boyfriend or are you more just like acquaintances? I don't know. We're like somewhere in between those two things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it, got it. But you like, can you can hang out comfortably together. Yeah, I, I don't know if we would like go hang out and like go to a park together, but like I, I like them, yeah. Well, you know, another factor I think that comes in with the idea of polyamory is stability. I, I think it's probably true, I'm curious if you agree, that polyamory, all else being equal, might be less stable than monogamy because you have a situation where, you know, there's just more parties involved, there's more people that could get upset about things, there's more likelihood of shifting dynamics. There's just more moving parts that could get a monkey wrench <laughs> into them. Exactly. And also more possibility of like emotional flare-ups because like one person's like, I don't get enough time and the other person's getting more time or jealousy or your secondary suddenly wants to be your primary, right? And then it's like, well, what is that dynamic like? Yeah. I think polyamory is a bit high risk, high reward in the sense that like, I think they're slightly less stable, but I think they're like kind of more fun. So I think it is true that it's like, there's more risks of like flare-ups as you say. And I think if you don't have the skill of like handling interpersonal conflicts well, you just shouldn't be poly. I think that like you should know yourself and think like, am I the sort of person that can like comfortably handle, like communicate my needs without it being a shouting match? Yeah, it seems like really clear, honest communication is just absolutely essential if you're going to navigate the complexity of, you know, multiple people's emotions simultaneously, including your own. What other traits would you say are really important if you're going to try polyamory? I think like innate low jealousy is like probably really, really helpful. Yeah. Uh, even though I got over my jealousy, like I think like if you just start out kind of low, it's probably easier. Well, I would just add that I think some people are just naturally more monogamous and that some are more naturally polyamorous. Like I know people that once they have a partner, they actually just seem to have no attraction to anyone else. And like the idea of being with anyone else is just odious to them. Yeah. Uh, whereas other people, it seems like when they're with one partner, they still actually feel a lot of attraction to others. And, you know, if they're ethical, they're not going to cheat, but they, they still have those feelings. And then I actually think there might be a third type where it's something like when they're in a monogamous relationship, they're just attracted to that one person. But as soon as they're in a non-monogamous relationship, they're actually attracted to multiple people. So there's something like a switch that can flip based on like what the rules of their relationship. Yeah, I think people's like views about what's possible affects what they want. And I think that like extends to relationships too. Like I find that when I, I'm really upset if I can't find something, but as soon as I, I have the belief that it's like literally impossible to get, then I stop feeling bad about it. And I feel mm. like that might be part of what's going on with that the switch that can be changed in some people. I wonder if evolutionarily there really were just genuinely different strategies that were successful in terms of, you know, if you think about evolution, people are trying to spread their genes into future generations. Okay, they weren't consciously trying to do that, but we know that's kind of how evolution operates. And those that were good at that spread more and became larger percentage of the population. And if you imagine, you know, in a, in the world of, you know, 50,000 years ago, it might be that the optimal strategy for some people was monogamy. You know, they find a good partner and they have many children with them and that's how they get their genes for it. And for other people, maybe the optimal strategy was more polyamorous where they actually find a bunch of partners and maybe those partners don't each contribute as much to the child rearing or something like that, but they, as a group all help. And that actually like works really well. What do you, what do you think of that idea? I don't know if in the anthropological literature, there is any documentation of like 
genuinely polyamorous societies. I think there's lots of polygynous societies where one man has multiple wives. Almost all emperors throughout history have had giant harems that are guarded. I think the polyamory thing is a little more novel. And I think it's aided by the fact that birth control is a thing. So like, I think a lot of men are very uncomfortable raising kids that they don't know are theirs. And I think birth control and DNA testing and stuff like that have made the worries about paternity go much down. So then they're I think men are more comfortable with their partners sleeping with other people. I have heard that, that most tribal societies that were not monogamous were more likely to be polygamous. But that being said, it would seem really surprising to me if there weren't some polyamorous cultures. Because I mean, if you look at the diversity of cultures, it's kind of incredible. I mean, there are cultures where, for example, the older women of the community not elderly, but, you know, uh, the older adult, you know, adult women are expected to like teach the young men how to have sex and things like this, right? That's just as an example. And it's like the diversity just seems just incredibly wide and complex. So yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I think that a lot of polyamory requires a lot of like what I would call like slack. Like you need to be, have the time to think about what are good communication norms and like, am I not so stressed that I can like emotionally process and I just, I suspect that like it is a epic phenomena of like luxury and and that you have a lot mm. of emotional slack that you can like have this like slightly more challenging but slightly more rewarding type of arrangement. It, it would also not surprise me if there are other things that ancient societies didn't do that required lots of slack. I don't know, like dangerous extreme sports. It maybe is a bad example because they probably did exist, but like I could see a culture that's like, no, of course you're not going to do some extreme sport that's going to get you killed and we don't have medical supplies, so we're not going to like let you risk yourself in that way. You know what I mean? That's interesting. But but if you were born into a polyamorous culture where it just was the complete norm and you were expected to have multiple partners, would it really take much energy and time? And especially if it's, let's say, you know, a group of 30 people all raising their kids together where like, well, your survival depends on everyone anyway. Is it that big a deal whether you're, that's your son or that's your son, you know? I think people are innately, deeply, deeply care about who their kids are and who their kids aren't. And mm. I don't know if you've heard the statistic, but step parents are a hundred times more likely to kill their children than biological parents. A hundred times, wow. A hundred times more likely. Now, the, the numbers could be very small and a hundred, like a hundred times 0.001 is not that different. You know what I mean? It right. still might be incredibly low probability. But it's yeah. still quite surprising that there's a factor of a hundred difference between the murder rates. And I think that like, I think it is sort of, unescapable that people care who their biological kids are and that affects our societal structure. I'm kind of a <laughs> innatist about this. That, that's interesting. I'm not sure I buy that, but, but I, you know, I definitely can see the arguments in favor of that. Yeah. Um, but, but I guess the reason I don't fully buy it is that I think that small tribal communities depended on each other so deeply anyway that like you would help out anyone's kid no matter what. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Sure, you might not help them quite as much as you'd help your own child, but like basically that it was much more communal. And actually, I've looked at some research on how babies are treated in certain tribal cultures, and it's like the baby would just be passed around. 15 people would hold the baby throughout the day. You know what I mean? It's just so unimaginably different than our society, but I don't know. I think it's just interesting to ponder these, these potential differences. Two things I want to say about that is like, one is like it might seem like all babies are being held the same, but there still might be zero sum conflicts that arise. That's fair. Yeah, the, the marginal piece of food, who does it go to, right? Who does it go to, exactly. That's one thing. And I've heard that there are cultures where paternity is uncertain. And in those cultures, the uncle, so the mother's brother, tends to be the father figure because 
people don't know who the actual father is. So like, but the mother's brother knows that the kid is related to them. Oh, that's interesting. Even though it's only one fourth the genes on on average rather than a half, it's still like, okay, it's still connected by genes. Yeah. And I've heard that that's like a common occurrence that happens in places where paternity is uncertain. But I, I don't know. I'm not also not an anthropologist very well. That, that's really interesting. Well, the last thing I just want to say about polyamory is it just seems to me way more ethical than polygamy on average oh, yeah. because it, it, it is built on this idea of symmetry and communication rather than this idea that like, oh, men are allowed to have this, but women are not. And, uh, and it, which just seems, I don't know, to me, it seems really unequal and unfair. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, have two, I have two thoughts. One is I don't think polyamory will work for everyone. What percentage of people do you think would be happiest in the polyamorous situation? My, my guess is 10%. People. Okay, yeah. It's a pretty small number. Now, obviously, I could change my mind on this, but I don't think that if you don't have good communication techniques and have already low jealousy and things like that, that you can do it without it being a disaster for everyone. And also, people get into polyamory under duress sometimes, where like a person's like, I want to break up with you. And the other person's like, well, let's be poly instead. And then like that's a kind of a, a tragic unhappy situation because you're like almost being you're not happy with the arrangement you're kind of just agreeing to it right right and i think that that you know people can certainly get really badly hurt if they're pushed into a polyamorous situation that they that they don't feel good about and you know one has to be really careful about that i i think the thing you said about the asymmetry i think there's actually a, a complicated thing that i actually am not fully i don't know what i think about this fully where if a bunch of women and one man decide consensually that we're going to have a asymmetrical relationship where we all agree that the, the man can have multiple wives but the wives can't have multiple husbands, but they all consensually agree. There is something to the idea that like you should let consensually adults do what they want. So like on one hand, I think it's better that polyamory allows for symmetry because people are happier in that arrangement. There is an argument that like don't tell consenting adults what to do, you know? Right, but I think we can differentiate between inherent asymmetry where like you're not even allowed to have it the other way versus chosen asymmetry where the people opt into it, right? Yeah, that, that is a very important difference, and it's a great point. What, what I'm arguing is less ethical. It's a situation where people don't get to choose. Uh, yeah. I think it's perfectly ethical if people really are consensual and choose to do something that they can set up the way they want. Yeah. Even if they fully choose it, I think there's a the question of like externalities and like what happens when we allow certain consensual arrangements. And I think that like there is a, a difficult conversation to be had of like, even if it's consensual to have an asymmetrical rule, do we still want to deter it just because of like, its effects. See what I'm saying? Like, if the 10% of people were polygamous, or like, as in asymmetrically poly, that would very much affect the dating market and affect a lot of people's lives, not just the people involved. So I, I think there's like a difficult ethical question there. So I tend to like say that contending adults should do what they want, but also we should like think hard about, you know, like what sorts of norms in society promote aggregate happiness. That's a great point. And I would also say that consent can be a fuzzy concept. Like if you grew up in a culture where polygamy was completely accepted and, you know, the standard, you might say, well, yes, I could consent to it. But like, well, but if, but if you'd lived in a culture where it wasn't the norm, you might say, well, actually, I would not prefer polygamy, right? So it's like, what do we really mean by consent even? And I think when the default is monogamy, we could, it's, it's relatively easy to talk about what it means to consent to something like that. But when the default is a certain way and the consent is the same direction as the default, it's hard to know what consent actually implies. Yeah, that's a good point. If you're looking to test or improve your critical thinking, 
there's an engaging way to do so with clearerthinking.org. By integrating useful insights from psychology and economics into fun, interactive programs, clearerthinking.org helps you to make better decisions, create new habits, and achieve your goals. Whether you have just five minutes or an hour, you can use more than 30 interactive tools for free on their website. Try the rationality test, which tells you which of 16 reasoning styles best matches your thinking. Or the common misconceptions game to see if you are over or underconfident when you bet on what's fact or fiction. Clearer Thinking's work is based on scientific research about how to shift behavior in the real world. So check out their free tools and tests at clearerthinking.org. So the final topic I want to discuss with you is societies and why they tend to decay over time. You know, I think we have this idea that our current society, well, sure, all the past societies have eventually gone away, but our current ones, these are going to stay, right? But if you take the long view, it's not that clear why that would be the case, why there'd be something permanent about our, our societies, whereas there never was in the past. I mean, maybe it's true for some reason, but it's not obvious it is. And I know you've done a bunch of thinking about why societies decay in general. Do you want to just tell us what do you mean by decay and why do you think it is that they decay? Yeah, so this is a topic I've just started thinking about. Uh, so I'm very open to like changing my mind on it, but I, I'm just fascinated with the question of like, are there inherent reasons why a society would like weaken over time? Is it just sort of randomly, sometimes they break, and that's inevitable because all things can break. So I sort of wanted to chart out, I, I mapped out 20 hypotheses for what might cause decay to happen over time. And I think these processes are all real, but it's like a really fascinating empirical question of like, to the degree that they contribute to collapse versus are just like small things that are in the background. My general, I've been reading a lot of collapse literature, and like my general view of collapse is just that to have one single theory of collapse is a mistake. Because in the same way that you would be silly to say, like, there's a one theory for why cars break down is silly, because, like, the tires could go out, the engine could break, the, like, there's lots of ways a car can break, and there's lots of ways that a society can break. So having a theory for car breaking is just as silly as having a theory for society breaking. That's very well said, yeah. And my fundamental view is that there's just a lot of problems that arise, and that societies basically break when they don't solve the problems that arise. So like basically what is causes my meta view is something like, are you able to solve the problems that come to you or not? And there's lots of different problems that can happen. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to put it. And I, you know, I think about the same thing like with relationships, like every relationship will eventually have problems, right? It's inevitable, but there's yeah. a huge difference between those people who can fix the problems when they arise, like identify them, talk about them, fix them versus those that can't. If, you, if they can't, then sort of like they're almost doomed to either end up in a bad relationship or have the relationship fall apart because we know problems will accumulate. And similarly with civilizations, like we know problems will arise. Some civilizations will be able to identify the problems, develop strategies, fix them, and actually fix them, and others won't, and they will eventually fall apart. But what, getting more concrete, what do you think are some of the biggest factors here that, that lead to civilization decay? So I think the biggest, one of the biggest is just regression to the mean, such that like, this is, I got this from Robbie Bessinger, just the idea that like, whenever we're interested in a society, it tends to be at a zenith of its power. And lots of things have to go right all at once for a culture to be at its zenith. And that just through like random drift and random change, societies will tend to regress to a lower average power, closer to the average of other societies at the time. And so like, it's just a selection effect that we tend to be interested in societies when they're most powerful. And then inevitably they regress to a lower mean just through random chance. I think it's like a very important sort of default that you should think about, please. 
That, well, that's that's really interesting, but that also implies that there isn't a kind of winner takes all phenomenon, right? Because imagine yeah. if if it was sort of like, well, whatever civilization is most powerful is very likely to just keep getting more powerful, then you wouldn't get this like kind of obvious regression to a mean effect. Yeah. So I think as a way of studying this problem, I think looking at why companies collapse is a great microcosm for why societies collapse. Because it's interesting that companies also aren't kind of winner take all. That like, why did Xerox get taken over by Microsoft? Why is there not one successful company that then just is able to continue dominating for generations? Well, it does seem like there is a kind of winner take all in companies often in like one industry, or maybe it's like you end up with like three big players or something like that if it's not just one. But that does seem to be true. It's just that they don't seem to necessarily spill out and take over every industry, right? Like Google, like just kind of completely crushed it in search and has you know, almost no competitors. I mean, there's Bing, but, you know, they have, mo you know, Google has most of the market share, but Google hasn't taken over insurance, for example. So, yeah. so, so maybe there's, do you think that that's an analog to civilizations or is that not really analogous? I think, I think there's a deep analog. I think there's just a question of like, why is it ever the case that a big, powerful company wasn't able to sustain itself? Like, why did IBM lose to Microsoft? And I think the answer, one of the big answers here is, two of the theories, one of them I call barnacle theory, and the other theory I just call momentum theory. So barnacle theory is the idea that over time, bureaucratic red tape gets built up, and there's just more and more people are in the system optimizing for their own success within the system rather than the system's success against other systems. So like, if I get myself a raise to have a job that I do very little work in, that's great for me, uh, and I'm really good at persuading people that it's necessary. But over time, those build up. I call it barnacle theory because it's like barnacles on a whale. They just like slowly accumulate as people fight for more and more money and less and less work and more sort of mild corruptions like that. So I think that's one very important factor. But I also think momentum theory is important where once a company is really good at doing one thing, it becomes hard for them to pivot. They just are, have a hard time saying like, oh, the thing that we were good at is not going to become valuable in five years. So let's take all of our resources and do a new thing. It just seems very difficult to do for some reason. Right. It's like it's like when you've been doing a thing very successfully for a long time, now you have a whole bureaucracy around doing that thing and you've got status for doing that thing and like official positions in society for doing that thing and so on, maybe training schools for it. And that's like, oh, we actually have to do this other thing. Well, think about how many people have been trained to do the first thing and think yeah. about, you know, how many careers are built on it and so on, right? Yeah. And, you, and it's been known to work for so long. So why would you risk so much on trying this new, never been tried thing? Yeah, surely there's going to be a bunch of people that say, we don't really need to do that new thing. Why don't we just keep doing what we've been doing? It's working well for us, right? Yeah, exactly. I think another very important variable is also, it seems like inequality expands over time necessarily just because of the fact that when you have opportunities, you get more opportunities. So like if I have a million dollars, it's easier for me to get another million dollars than if I have $10. And if you just expand that to everyone, then it just means that inequality will inevitably increase. That's really interesting. And I feel like people fundamentally misunderstand that idea a lot, where they'll say, oh, the system must be corrupt because inequality is growing. But there's so many reasons why inequality has the natural tendency to grow. One of them is that if you have nothing, like you have no savings, then all of your money is just being spent on just surviving very often. Whereas if you have savings, you can invest it. And then the money starts growing. And not only does it grow, but savings tend in, tends to grow exponentially, right? Like the stock market tends to have a certain percentage return a year. I think it's been like 9% a year on average over 50 years or something like that. So it's not only growing, it's growing exponentially. Whereas if you have no savings, you don't get any of the exponential growth. 
And then not only that, but then that means that the more money you have, the more money you make, because, you know, if I'm getting 9% a year on $10,000 of savings, that's a lot less money each year than 9% on 100,000. And then there's additional factors, which are companies. Creating companies creates inequality. And the reason is because the owner of the company, generally speaking, gets way more of the, of the earnings than the employees of the company. And I guess some people think that that's a big problem, but also, you know, I think the, the counter argument to that would be like, well, that person, you know, they went and started this thing from scratch. It was their idea. They took a huge risk on it and they may, you know, may not have done it if they wouldn't have gotten at least a significant return for taking all that risk and that effort. So, so, you know, and there's probably other factors as well, but I just think that people have the sense that there's like something wrong with the system if there's inequality being created. And I, and I think it's more like inequality is created by default what we can do, though, is we can redistribute it to make things less unequal. So basically, the problem is not that things become more unequal by default. The problem is if we don't redistribute it enough, then that leads to all sorts of problems of, you know, you got super wealthy people when other people are super poor and so on. Yeah. And I just think people notice when their social status is like much lower than people around them. And if they notice they don't have any ability to advance themselves in society and get status. Though I do often think that the like look at wealth inequality is like a mistake that like really what we should be looking at is status inequality and there's ways to give people status other than wealth and i think we should think way more about allocating status than we should think about how to allocate wealth well we should do both but a actual worry that a lot of the under like people that are poor is, is that they like don't ha- aren't seen as having dignity in society they aren't respected they aren't seen as like equals or worthy or something like that and changing that seems equally if not more important than being the wealth itself? I would say they're both super important, but sort of for different reasons. Yeah. Like it's very clear that if you just don't have enough money, that, that that's going to be your main focus and you're going to have to think about it all the time and you're probably going to have to take a lot of shortcuts that in the long term are not good for you or might even cost you money in the long term. You know, this idea of like, well, if I had enough money to buy a really good pair of boots, I would actually save a lot of money in the long term, but instead I have to buy shitty boots that wear out really fast and actually spend more money uh, or people making all kinds of decisions that are, harmful for themselves because they have no choice because they just don't have enough money. So it seems like getting people up to a certain level of wealth seems just incredibly important for people's happiness. And I think the data bears that out that, you know, going from really low levels of wealth to like enough wealth to have the things you need actually does make people a lot happier. But then there's this additional thing, which is the status differential. It's like, even if you have the money you need to survive, if you feel like you're at the bottom of the totem pole, and nobody gives you any respect, that's an additional large harm. What do you think about that? I think you've just persuaded me that money is actually the more important thing to redistribute than status, and that I was too excited about like a contrarian idea in that moment. <laughs> I love it. You know, I, did, I have so much respect for people changing their mind, and especially doing so publicly, and I think that's just such a good example to set. So thank you for that. <laughs> Another, I've been reading this book by this guy, Tainter, Joseph Tainter, and he, his view about what causes society to collapse is that they build complexity in order to solve problems. And then that complexity like costs the people in the societies. Like the more complexity you have, the more like taxes it takes to sustain that complexity, basically. But then the complexity that you invest in has diminishing returns. So like slowly you are still having this expensive apparatus, but you're getting diminishing returns on it. What kind of complexity? Like can you give an example? Yeah. So one that Tainter likes to talk about is like the Roman Empire keeps expanding its empire and like getting new territories, which is like a, a form of complexity of like having more and more provinces. 
right? You have to be, you have more and more things you have to manage and you have to coordinate and make sure that, oh, there's yeah. a, you know, people rebelling in that region. We have to deal with that. And oh, they, there's a drought in that region and so on. But then they run out of societies that are really wealthy that they can just plunder. And then all the societies around them are either really poor, like Britain at the time, or really hard to conquer, like Parthia at the time. And so they had this like model of like, we have this money that lets us conquer countries and we conquer the countries and take their wealth and that sustains the whole apparatus. But then you run out of uh, countries to conquer and plunder. And then you have this expensive apparatus without the ability to plunder. I see. So you still, you, they still have this huge military and it's all set up to continue plundering, but there's no one to plunder. And so then the whole thing just goes off a cliff. Yeah. And I think that's like a, I think an interesting model there. I think his general model of like diminishing returns and complexity, I think that's like, seems like a mistake because I don't think mistake complexity is the sort of thing that can even have diminishing returns. Like it feels like saying diminishing returns on doing things. Like it's just too vague of a, a category. Yeah, yeah. I could see sp more specific manifestations of which it would be true. Like there seems to be diminishing returns on, let's say, standardization or bureaucracy or, you know, many different things that we might associate with complexity. Yeah, exactly. So I think each individual instantiation of complexity could have diminishing returns, but I kind of don't think that like complexity itself could have diminishing returns just because it's so vague. And it's also like, it seems also like a mistake to think that like complexity necessarily makes things more expensive because like one way you can complexify is like to make your interpersonal management of people and your bureaucracy more efficient. Like you could come up with a kind of a complex system that like more efficiently allocates information between the bureaucracies, which makes it actually cheaper somehow. Right, like Amazon is a, has an incredibly complex operation, but it, it it the entire purpose of that complexity is to deliver goods to people incredibly quickly and cheaply and efficiently, right? Yeah. So like complexity doesn't have to be more expensive. You can be you can make things cheaper by making it more complex. So I think that's another way his theory is wrong. But I I definitely like it as like a a lens to look at the world through. You know. So Sam, just to finish up the last few minutes, you know, we've talked about a lot of different things. We've talked about the art world and aesthetics. We talked about philosophy, we talked about social skills, polyamory, and societal decay. What is the final thing you want to leave the listener with? It seems like in my life, a lot of my friends that are into aesthetics and fun and like living life well and having a good time in life don't care as much about ideas and about caring enough about like deep rigor and making sure their ideas are true. And it seems like a lot of my friends that care a lot about rigor don't care very much about making sure their spaces are beautiful and that they dance and that they have lots of like fun, beautiful experiences. And I find this to be like a real shame. And I want there to be more collaboration. I want people that like are into art and are good at making art to like see the like beauty and wonder of being able to like actually know what's true and caring about having clear thinking and really solving problems in ways that are intelligent. And I want people that are really good at thinking to like think really hard about like are we actually having our meetups in places that people want to be in? Are we like, are our spaces comfortable? Are they beautiful? Do they smell nice? Are they, are they a place that you want to live in? And are we having fun, right? Yeah. Are we having fun? Cause I just, I don't know. I, it feels very weird that my social life feels so split in this way when it shouldn't be because both are so important for a life well lived. So that's, I think my main thing that I want to implore the listeners <laughs> that you can have <laughs> Thank you, Sam. That was great. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Great talking to you, man, as always. Thanks again for listening. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at clearerthinkingpodcast at gmail.com. 
or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 321-341-4669. And by the way, if you leave us a voicemail, we might use the audio on the show. Either way you contact us, we'll look forward to hearing from you. To find out more about Spencer, visit spencergreenberg.com. To find out more about Sam, take a look at his bio in the show notes. And to find out more about the show, visit clearerthinkingpodcast.com. If you like the show, we hope you'll rate and review us on whichever podcast store you used to subscribe to us. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.